What is going on? Welcome to the show. Happy Thursday. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. Pete Callender here. And the numbers, if you would like to join the program, are 704-570-1110 and 1-800-WBT-1110. The email is Pete at ThePeteCallenerShow.com. Remember, get the podcast at WBT.com as well. And uh, you get the, the podcast that arrives in your smartphone or tablet every single day. You don't have to do anything. And it's free. I just give it away. So, uh, well, 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 look at that. The FEC fining the DNC, the Democratic National Committee, as well as the campaign for Hillary Clinton in 2016. Why? Glad you asked. For lying about the funding of the infamous and discredited Russian dossier that was used in a smear attempt against Donald Trump weeks before he shocked the world with his 2016 presidential victory. The Washington Examiner's Paul Bedard writing that the election agency, the FEC, said that Clinton and the DNC violated strict rules on describing expenditures of payments funneled to the opposition research firm Fusion GPS through their law firm. This was the money laundering operation that the Clinton campaign and the DNC utilized in order to mask where the funding for the oppo research came from, because it came from them. It came from the Democrats. They washed it through their law firm, law firm partner, Mark Elias and Michael Sussman, who has now been charged um, for lying to the FBI investigators. But uh, Mark Elias, the guy who runs all over the place suing every Republican legislature, like North Carolina, he's sued over the uh, election laws and he is sued over voter ID and redistricting and all this other stuff. He is the Democrat, quote unquote, super lawyer. He's right in the middle of this crap. But nobody ever thinks to examine that. No media outlets ever think to examine Mark Elias and the role that he played in this disinformation campaign. That's what that was. And I'm old enough to remember when people in the media and Democrats, but I repeat myself, uh, that they were very, very, very concerned, super, super concerned about the disinformation that got Trump elected. Remember that? I know it's been a while, but I'm old enough to remember it. And I, I do have a pretty good memory, truth be told. So, Maybe it's easier for me to recall this. A combined uh, $1,024,407.97, so over a million dollars, was paid by the treasurers of the DNC and the Clinton campaign. It went to the law firm Perkins Coie, which then paid for Fusion GPS's information, which came from the Steele dossier. And the party and the campaign hid the reason they claimed it was for legal services not for opposition research and that was a lie and they knew it was a lie the memo said that the clinton campaign and the dnc argued that they were correct in describing their payment as for legal advice and services well i guess it just depends on what the definition of services is And I guess in order to know that, I guess that depends on what the definition of is, is, right? 
Is that how that game is played? I think so. They say it was services because Perkins Coie hired Fusion, not us. We just gave them the money to hire Fusion. See, so we didn't pay for that. That was Perkins Coie. We hired them for legal advice and services. Are you aware? So you can hire a law firm to go out and pay for fake intel for opposition research through a law firm? That's how that works? That's interesting. Hire a dirty law firm and they go out and get completely fabricated disinformation. You then plant that with the FBI in order to launch a federal investigation, which leads to the FISA courts, which leads to the uh, the tapping of the phones. Oh, my God, Trump said they tapped his phone. Like, nobody even uses the wiretaps anymore. Yeah, but he was right. They did. They were eavesdropping. They were monitoring traffic in and out. And then, remember, they also utilized, what was it, Georgia Tech, right? Was it Georgia Tech or Emory? I forget. There were some guys out of there. They got a bunch of information this data that uh, they skimmed because they got a government contract in order to try to do some, I don't know, some tech work or whatever. They were working on this project and they corrupted that. And they were getting data and and all sorts of the, the metadata. They were getting all of this stuff from the White House, from President Trump's residence. If you don't find this to be problematic, you're a partisan hack. This is a bipartisan problem, folks, and I know it was Hillary's campaign and the DNC that did it, and so that makes it you know, kind of icky and awkward, and maybe I don't want to cover this. But imagine if Trump weaponized these agencies in the manner that the Clintons and the Obama administration did. Oh, my God, Pete, why why you got to bring Obama into this? I mean, he's had, you know... No scandals. The worst scandal he had was a tan suit. (laughs) These are the fictions that Blue and On tell themselves. And their enablers and their water carriers in the media, they will just ignore this. But this is really, really concerning. Let's see, back to the Washington Examiner story here. It added that neither the campaign nor the party conceded to lying but won't contest the finding. So they're going to say, okay, you got us. We can't win, and we just want to put this behind us, so here's the money. We'll pay $8,000. That's what the Clinton campaign has to pay. Eight grand. That's it. The DNC treasurer has to pay $105,000. Those were the fines from the FEC. This only came about, by the way, because the Coolidge Reagan Foundation filed a complaint three years ago. That's how long this took. Three years. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. The Pete Callender Show. I'm Pete. And uh, the Coolidge Reagan Foundation filed a complaint more than three years ago over the funding of the Steele dossier that got washed through the uh, law firm of Perkins Coie. The money went to Fusion GPS, which got it, uh, then got the dossier of the, the P-tape, the, the, the alleged P-tape, the existence 
of that tape and the uh, the underlying story, all a lie, but generated with money paid for via the law firm. It came from the DNC and Hillary Clinton's campaign. And the only reason that the FEC, Federal Election Commission, fined the DNC and Hillary Clinton's campaign from 2016 is because the Coolidge-Reagan Foundation filed a complaint. Dan Backer, who brought the complaint on behalf of the foundation, which focuses on free speech and the First Amendment, told the Washington Examiner, quote, This may well be the first time that Hillary Clinton, one of the most evidently corrupt politicians in American history, has actually been held legally accountable, and I'm proud to have forced the FEC to do their job for once. He hopes uh, that they uh, will actually get some further action down the road as well. And if when I first read that, I kind of read right past it. But then I stopped and I thought about it. And he's right. I'm not sure Hillary Clinton has ever been legally held responsible for anything. Right? This is the closest that I recall. Yesterday I went over a piece at Tablet Magazine tabletmag.com by Jacob Siegel. It was called The Invasion of the Fact Checkers. And I'm not going to go back over the, the portions, obviously, that I did yesterday. But there's a connection here. He went on to say, I did not cover this part of, it's a very lengthy piece. It's like seven pages or something. But the fact checkers have proved to be crucial compliance officers for the state, for the government. Fact checkers are compliance officers for the state. They filter out troublesome information before it reaches the public, torturing the facts until they conform to officially sanctioned narratives and smearing dissenters as dangers to the public or stooges of Vladimir Putin. That's the information ecology we are living in, and as a reporter, I can tell you it stinks. He talks about how fact-checking has been around for a long time, Uh, you know, 80 years or so, and it was always an inward-facing quality control mechanism. Uh, Remember the term ombudsman? So it, but what it did was it forced the publications to examine the veracity of the things that they were publishing because somebody was there to fact-check themselves. It was ombudsman, but it was also people who would chase down dates and make sure that, you know, this person's name is spelled correctly and That sort of thing. But what it also conferred upon the organization was trustworthiness and prestige. People who are watching or reading or or listening to that product, they now know that they can have some level of confidence that what they're hearing has been vetted because they got fact checkers. But what has happened now, the trend lines for Journalism and fact-checking, they've been going in the opposite direction for 30 years. Between 1990 and 2017, daily and weekly newspapers lost more than a quarter of a million jobs. That's half the workforce gone. The decline accelerated during the pandemic. And uh, you've got 128 news organizations that were shut down during that period. So as journalism collapses, it opens up a space for successor practices grouped under the banner of countering disinformation. 
you know, like the Steele dossier, like the thing that Democrats paid for to try to persuade Americans that Donald Trump was a Putin stooge, was a puppet of the Kremlin, that kind of stuff. Oh, no, I kid, I kid. They didn't fact check that stuff. In 2014, there were 44 fact checking organizations in America, according to the Duke University Reporters Lab census. As of last June 2021, there were 300 more. So it went from 44 to 341 active fact checking projects. So who's funding them? Ah, that's the question. News Talk 1110-993-WBT, The Pete Callender Show, 704-570-1110 and 1-800-WBT-1110. And in fact, if you call that number right now and you are the 11th caller to do so, then you will get some tickets to the WBT 100th Anniversary Celebration presented by the Center for TMJ and Sleep Apnea. It's going to be on Saturday, April 9th, 7.30 p.m. at CPCC Halton Theater. And you can come on down and join us all at the the big event, the WBT folks from past and present, maybe some future ones as well. We're going to be inducting John Stokes, Jim Zoki, and Bob Lacey into the WBT Hall of Fame. And uh, you can get details at WBT.com. Or if you don't win the tickets right now, keep listening. we got other chances. But if you don't win them, you can actually buy them as well. There are still tickets available at WBT.com. So the 11th caller at 704-570-1110 or 1-800-WBT-1110. Good luck to one and all. George is sitting by, ready to take your call. All right, so I'm going over more of this article, and I started on this uh, in the third hour of yesterday's show. Invasion of the Fact Checkers by Jacob Siegel, who is a reporter. But he talks about the uh, the decline of journalism and the rise of these fact-checking operations. So what happens is as journalism and newsrooms collapse for a variety of reasons, um, big tech is a big one. Don't even get me started on what Facebook did to hasten the demise of newsrooms, but I digress. Okay, We saw a rise of these fact-checking organizations. Here is uh, from the Harvard University's Neiman Lab. There was a, a report, or an article rather, published last September that said publishers hope that fact-checking can become a revenue stream. Right now, it's mostly big tech who is buying. In other words, the same internet platforms that have turned journalism into a hollow shell while incentivizing the hyperpolarized clickbait that cratered public trust in the media and which happened to be major donors to the Democratic Party, right, with an existential interest in pleasing the government, right, those that those platforms are also the benefactors of a new meta-journalism that places itself above mere reporting. It's not, see, this is, when people say, I just want to hear, like, you know, just the facts, right? Just tell me I was I was called a news Nazi. When I was a reporter, I was called a news Nazi by uh, uh, my boss, who I respected, and I understood what he meant was I would go in and I would just say, this person says this, this person says that. Here's why, you know, this is an important story. You have to tell the why, the context. But that was it. I wouldn't inject adjectives. Now, part of that was because in radio, I was 
having to crank out stories that were 35 to 40 seconds. And so you learn to choose the words in your stories very carefully because if you choose too many words, then it's too long and it doesn't get on the air. So I would always say, for example, I would never use words like opined or reacted or uh, pounced or seized. I would never use those words. I would say says. They say. That's it. So-and-so says this. So-and-so says that. It's one syllable. It's easy. And it avoids any kind of bias. And you use it for everybody. You can also use responded if you're going to go have a, um, have a soundbite that's like back and forth, you know. You can say so-and-so responded. But that's about it. I was, I, I'm a simple man. And I just tried to keep it simple in the stories. So now what you've got is these big tech folks that are running their fact-checking operations or using third-party fact-checking operations that are funded by NGOs, non-government organizations, but also dark money groups, political parties. And they're now putting themselves above sort of the standard of journalism, which was just to tell you what happened. And now they're going to tell you what was true. And there, that is that is different, right? A reporter is going to go out and say, I got this guy to say this and this guy that says something else. Here's, here's the story. But what fact checkers do is they'll take the same information and they will deem one of those positions to be the truth, capital T, and one to be not true. And once you label it as not true, now you can keep it off of people's feeds, right? You can censor it. You, you, you plug it into the algorithm and you drive it down so people don't see it. This, Facebook did this to radio companies. A lot of people don't realize this. Facebook did this to radio companies several years ago. Not just radio companies, but a, but a lot of publishers. So the first thing they do is go out and try to get you to create the content. See, because that's the key here. And it always will be. And it's one of the things that people who are in various uh, content creation industries, wherever they may be, a lot of people in these industries, they don't understand it. Content is king, and it always will be. If you're not creating good content, you can't sell it, generally speaking. You can't sell bad content. Okay, yes, yes, except MSNBC. I kid, I kid. No, there's there's an audience for that. I mean, it's a very small audience. Okay, all right, I'll stop, I'll stop. I know it's like mugging a dead guy. Okay, so you've got... Facebook goes to the content creators and says, you guys use us for your distribution. So you could just focus on content creation because Facebook needs content creators. They were getting it for free with, you know, everybody posting their pictures of their grandbabies and pets. But that's not, you, you can't market that. People can't sell to that, right? Facebook was trying to monetize the relationship between you and your family and friends that you had connected with on Facebook. And by trying to get between you two, it became very obvious what they were trying to do and people didn't like it. So then what do they do? They come to the content creators, the professionals. They say, hey, CNN and Fox News and radio companies, TV companies, they say, you create the content and we'll make sure that people who follow you see it. So that's why there was that huge push. You remember, I don't know, probably about eight or nine years ago, maybe a decade, this big push to get everybody to follow you, like us on Facebook, follow us on Facebook, all of that. It's kind of trailed off now. 
But there's a huge push. Why? Because Facebook told us that, hey, if you get a lot of followers, we'll push your content down. Leave the distribution to us. And then what happened? Facebook pulled the plug on it and tried to charge everybody. So a lot of newsrooms got hollowed out because they allowed Facebook to be the distribution system. And now you see the rise of Substack, of newsletters and all of that, which is what they used to do. These companies, these platforms used to do that stuff. Now they're moving back to it because if you have the distribution system yourself and you have the email list, then you're bulletproof. Those are your people. And as long as you create, uh, as long as you keep creating good content, you'll be fine. You'll be fine.